Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Learn with Lowell show. Uh, today, we're joined with Ahmed. He is the founder and CEO of Narrator AI. It's a combination of like data and entrepreneurship in this conversation today. We, be- we begin the podcast by talking about focus items, essentially, you know, what should people focus on versus just doing busy idiot type work. Uh, common pitfalls of startups and founders and people working on something important that they care about very deeply. Uh, whether we talk about founders or startups, like it's all related topics. So if you are working on something they care very much about, you mostly fall into these types of problems. If you're new out of the gate or just in general, you'll 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 lapse into it. So really interesting conversation. We talk about customer service, uh, how to build uh, great conversion rate channels, um, why he deletes code. And normally I just save code, but we, we talk about this, like why he deletes code and we'll just re- rewrite things. And we have a conversation about that. Basically, we have a, uh, a really long conversation about him, his practices, what he thinks about, how he assesses people, how he's built Narrator AI, what's the purpose of it, what he sees the future of it being. And so if this, if, if any of those things kind of interest you, this is going to be a fun conversation for you. Um, additionally, if you've never heard of any of these things, you can just listen in and, and learn something new. Um, so I encourage everybody to listen in, stay curious, and let's have a great conversation with Ahmed key problems that I think we both agree a lot of founders are, are people when they're first starting to move from like doing to kind of leading and doing at the same time is they get stuck in kind of like the sphere stage where they try to do everything and it and and they're they're doing it because like they're kind of afraid and they feel like it kind of feels nice to have like so much on their plate but usually that I call it like the busy, busy idiot stage and so since you know so much about analytics I, I am curious what are what are the actual key uh, metrics or analytics that you think people should be focused on when they're in, in like the early stages of a startup to like up to like the first thousand customers. Are there, are there key things that you think people are not focusing on that you think they should be focusing on? Yeah, good question. So analytics is one of those things that people love to do when they don't know what they're trying to get out of it. So an example is I've seen startups with five people be like, we're building machine learning to predict churn. And I'm like, yeah, like you're five customers. Don't worry about it. <laughs> like, or um, you're trying to think about how to track everything and how to do proper analytics when you can just literally record every session your customer has and watch it. So I think depending on your product, like I think that when you start as a founder, I recommend don't start building dashboards, don't start building analytics, don't start actually doing all that stuff. Just literally watch, like use a tool like LogRocket or Full Story and watch customers use your product. And when you can't afford to watch customers use your product anymore, Think about what you're looking for and start thinking about like some basic one or two or three KPIs that indicate things are going in the right direction. Just realize that you're at the scale that you're in doing any more rigorous data analysis won't make any sense. Don't be A-B testing with like platforms, which are all like mostly scams. And don't be spending your time looking at retention curves because those are garbage. Focus on like your core metrics, which is like number of users coming back to your product and like or using your product or doing the action that you care about and continue to understand how you're doing it. That is just guiding if you're on the right track. Don't think that, oh, I launched a feature, my number went up a little bit, that's great. No, 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 that's just novelty and it's variance. Don't look at change last week over a week. Those are all variants. Just have like a couple core metrics, whether it's revenue users um, or retention and focus on actually building what the customer needs and watch as much sessions of your customer using your product. I find that is going to replace anything anything that you're trying to do. And a good rule of thumb is like in the analytics stack, like the best thing you can do is you can like literally watch your customer and talk to them. But you can't, when your company is too big, you can't afford to do that with everyone. 
second best thing you can do is add observability into your product and make sure people can actually see what's going on with more customers at random. Third is then get into a level of understanding your metrics, understanding how to slice them, understanding how it changes in time. Fourth, being able to ask and answer questions quickly using data, which is known as like self-service analytics. And then you get into like the world of building lots of pretty dashboards and building decks that have lots of like 3D plots and all that shit. Like I think after that, like the analytics goes from providing value to showing that you can do analytics, which is like a whole transition we can talk about later. But for the first couple of years of your company, you should not focus on that. As a data analytics company, Narrator, which has been using data since day one and very active about it, we still watch a lot of our customer sessions and we don't have dashboards. We focus on asking and answering questions and we enable everyone in our company to do that. And that has kind of allowed us to really build the most uh, the best relationship with our customer. We understand them. We continue to improve a product for them. When we release a feature, they're like, that's exactly what I wanted. And that's what you want to hear as you're kind of building something for them and not trying to build all this theater. I call it data theater that people love to kind of perform. Look at all this like world map of everyone in the world who's logged in on our website. It's like, why do you care about that? Like who you're targeting like US customers. And like it's IP addresses, so it doesn't even matter. Like you're just like it's just like looks fun, but really just distracts you. And uh, just to, to echo the the last point, there's a lot of really great communities out there, like Discord or whatever for various languages. And I can tell you the globe of where all the customers are. I've seen that a lot, like a lot, a lot, like a lot, a lot. Probably like maybe like one in a hundred posts is like, how do I do this? Hey, can you give me feedback on how to do this? Um, or I'm building this. Can I like integrate this or whatever? So that, that, that literally does come up a lot. Uh, it, what, what's to stop you from always having some fraction of your user base being uh, their interaction with your, your platform being watched in that way? Is there, I mean, uh, imagine it's expense in terms of like time and hosting the data and the, the video file or whatever, but what, what's actually stop you from just like a thousand customers, you do it for like a percentage of it, like maybe 10%. So you do a hundred over the course of a month when you have a hundred thousand, do like a, a fraction of a, of a percent still to keep that, like your, your finger on the pulse, so to speak. Uh, yeah. What's to stop you from just not always doing that since it's such a powerful tool. Yeah, I don't, the answer is, um, like the, like more of ideas in your head. Like people, I think founders like to do work that appears valuable more than doing valuable work. Yeah. And I think that's the fundamental. So as a, my company has been going on for an hour or five years in, I still watch sessions. I'm like CEO watching sessions. I think that like, I think a lot of CEOs and a lot of founders feel like they're too good for their own product. Like I ask this question a lot, which is like, how often are you using your product? Like a narrator, it's like very important to me that I use our product every day. And I've been at companies where the CEO or the person, like the head of product that runs the company has never logged in. Wow. So they've been like running and guiding on product based on like never using it. And if they had used it, they'd be like, wow, this is annoying. <laughs> like, why am I doing this? And I think that's the point. So I think when you watch the customers, you're like, wow, that's really what's annoying and not what you think. Cause I think often we build for the marketing and less for the customer. And you see this a lot, like data, especially like you see these trends where everyone's like, we're gonna all build data dictionaries. And it's like, who is finding value out of these things? 
Like we, everyone needs lineage tracking. Oh, I need to implement lineage tracking. Everyone's implementing lineage tracking. You're like, why? Like, why do you know why you're doing it? Well, everyone needs it. And you're like, but like, do you need it? This happens also in software. Like, I think there was a funny moment where everyone was launching Kubernetes. Mm -hmm. And for people who don't know what Kubernetes is, Kubernetes is Google's way of like dynamically launching. Like Google is such a big product that like running it locally would be too expensive. So they have a bunch of like open computers on the internet that has like the full Google server. So as a software engineer, you can use that and write code to it. So you don't have to wait like the hour it takes to download the files onto your computer. Now, that makes sense when you're Google. If you're a startup and your entire app fits, fits on your computer, why are you paying and doing all this extra work? Because you want to be on Kubernetes because, oh, when I scale, it's like, yeah, deal with that then. Like when you're at the moment that you're at the size of Google, like you can invest in changing your infrastructure to Kubernetes. But till then, like that is theater. That makes you feel good. And you're like, oh, I'm doing all this stuff. And like, oh, we just bought this tool to do machine learning. Or like we have chatbots. I'm like, why do you have chatbots? You have like, how many people are chatting with you? Like a thousand every day? You really need a chatbot? It's like five people. Give them a human. No one has ever enjoyed talking to a chatbot. It sucks. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the point of founders. I think we like the idea of things more than we like the actual reality of what it's trying to do. And then we just kind of do it for theater. Mm -hmm. I think Amazon has probably some of the best customer service in terms of the pipeline for, for resolving a problem. And the first element is a chatbot, but it's basically, have you searched how to resolve this? All right, no. And it's like very clearly, you can just click, talk to a human and then you immediately get the help you need. So it's a really, really quick way of going from like A to Z and just solving a problem. But there are products out there that are just simple chat box. And I hate that. Like I, I will go from, wow, this is neat. I'm going to try this out to I'm going to delete everything. And I'm going to email you about deleting my data because I hate you so much. <laughs> this is so irritating. And then they never yeah. get back to you. They never do. And this is terrible because they don't have that many users. Often the services that have chatbots, like there's not that many. I, a narrator, we have a certain amount of customers, but we're not getting that many. Like we'd like to assume that like based on our onboarding and our quality of training, we shouldn't need that many chats. So I sit on the chat all the time. And like, it's one chat, maybe every other day. Like, but then when they ask a question and they get a person who knows what they're doing, knows their company, helps them right away, you create that incredible experience and loyalty. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the key here is that loyalty that you're building instead of again, just like, that was fun. And even bad about chatbots, the other thing is evaluating how good your chatbot is, is really hard. Like, I think one of the other funny things that we do in data analytics is that we tell the company that we're paying money to tell me how, what, their, what their ROI is. Mm -hmm. We do this with ads too. We're like, hey, Facebook, here's a million dollars. Now, did you return me money? Facebook, yes, I returned you 4 million. And you're like, but I, don't, I only have 3 million in my bank. And they're like, based on our proprietary algorithm, in the future, you're gonna have 4 million. And you're like, what? Like, where is this disconnect? So I think chatbots are one of the same things too, where everyone is like, how do you evaluate whether they worked or not is a really hard question. And then everyone's like, oh, I added this chatbot and people started talking to it. And then they later on signed up for our product. Therefore chatbot, it's increasing conversion by like, we got a million dollars in chatbots. And I'm like, no, you're just doing shitty data analytics. I have actually had a company had this conversation with. They're like, our chatbot is like the best. We've added over a million dollars of revenue thanks to our chatbot. And I was like, how did you figure that out? And then you realize they just did everything wrong. And they was the PM who spent like two months doing the 
in adding the chatbot and fighting for it, decided that here, I'm going to show you why I'm valuable. And you're like, that's not what happened at all. It's just like, you, you definitely took some data, but like a lot of liberty, like the website before the chatbot, uh, and then your conversion rate continues to go up, but like, I mean, sorry, the conversion rate is stagnant, but you're having more leads. But now after the chatbot, total number of leads came at a million dollars. You're like, wait, what? But like, if there was no chatbot and you stayed the same, you would have had the exact same results. Mm. Like, but it's like, it sounds better that like, now that we have a chatbot, we added $1 million of revenue last month. Yeah. I wonder what the conversion rate was before and after the chatbot and like, when do people click out when they, when they you know, cause I think you can measure that pretty simply and then counteract that person's uh, thesis. Um, oh yeah. But nobody likes to measure that. I, I, I say this all the time with all these like big product orgs that they keep doing experiments and the A-B test. And I'm like, okay, A-B test is a lift. And I'm like, okay, let, let's just look at your conversion rate over time. And it usually looks like a flat line. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what did you change? Like every experiment you said has, has done better by 10%. There was a joke in the data community that said, A-B test is, tells you if you are right or you were right. And that's it. And you're just like, no one's undoing things. Like if you worked in a company, how many times did you release something and revert it? Because it didn't develop the customer value that you wanted. We don't, as founders, we don't do that. I think that's one of the things that like, I spent a lot of time like deleting parts of our product which is like soul crushing. Cause I'm like, oh, we spent like a million dollars to build that. And now we're just deleting it. But like less is more here. I think founders love to think like, if I keep adding more features and more features, it's going to be better. That's never what happens. You just pile up a bunch of shit and nobody wants to use that. Cause now it's convoluted and confusing and has a billion features. Do you, uh, do you, I mean, do you legit delete it or do you just like you stop it from being supported and, and like push to a customer and then, but you still save it somewhere. Like personally, like, I would, I'd like, I'd put it on a file somewhere or in like a personal, you know, Bitbucket or something. Cause even yeah. if I never saw it again, I would feel weird about completely deleting it. Just never know when you need it. I actually have the other policy where I think you should delete it. Like I really, so even, yeah, yeah. And it, this is more of my flavor and how I also write code. Like our course tool that we built has been built nine times. Every time I rebuild it, the core like engine of it, I start from scratch. I don't refactor the code. I start from scratch. And the reason why I like to do that, and this is an exercise I learned from actually uh, in writing. People recommend do that in writing. Yeah, Tolkien did it. You, what? Jared Tolkien, he did it that way. Oh, that's incredible. Because then you, all the stuff that's remained in your head is the core, and you're not distracted by all this other shit that you wrote. And like, instead, I think restarting is really, really like uh, fresh. So I think for code and stuff, I say like, let me, I have no problem with deleting it because when I need it, I will know a lot more about the system. I'll know a lot more about the assumptions. I'll know a lot more about the guarantees that rebuilding it would be building a significantly better product. Hmm. So I think that's the key of a lot of founders is like, we need to start thinking about what is the thing that we're delivering to our customers and how do we focus on not shipping a bunch of extra shit with it? Hmm. I, I think it'd be really useful if you had like a, like an analytics anonymous or something where it was as if you were talking to an intern who's trying to learn about analytics and you just shared these stories in like a newsletter way or like in a, like a really small bite-sized way. Cause I think a lot of people have these types of questions, but they don't know who to ask and what answers you can find online. You don't know how well you can trust them. Cause there's usually a lot of uh, BS going on or there's just like a, Hey, sign up to my thing at the bottom. So I, th I think it'd be really cool if you had like some type of uh, it'd be great for your branding, I guess as well. 
Um, I don't think you have one. If I, if you do, I, I, I'm sorry for missing it, but I don't think you have that something like that. Yeah, I think I've been, I've been actually starting to use LinkedIn and Twitter in that way. So I've mm-hmm. been just slowly sharing tidbits. Like I think my last post on LinkedIn was about data theater okay. and this idea of doing data for data sake. And I'm trying to kind of get more in that habit of sharing. I think the challenge is like a lot of people want to also feel like, I know I, I get a lot of responses, uh, people who are like, yeah, but like, what about this thing? And like, hey, like it becomes this aggressive return. And I think that, I don't know. I think I my philosophy, and I think there's a lot of people that resonate with the philosophy, but the people who are trying to sell you data products uh, and often the people who are like, like there's just, I, I think there's two kinds of people in the world, right? There's people who actually like, like why do you do what you do? One people do it for like the sake of maintaining and one people look at stuff that values. Mm-hmm. Like, I think there's people who go into meetings and they'll say this meeting doesn't provide value. So let's not have it. Or like we shouldn't, like we don't do sprints or Jira or agile development because for us, we don't find it to be helpful for our things. And then people, and there's people who are like, no, we need to do agile because we are agile and we need to be agile. And you're like, what? Like, cool. But like, do you know why it was created? Because it wasn't created for you. And I think that's often a separation. Like there's always an edge case where something could be valuable and something could not be valuable. And then, yes, there are companies that are two people that need to invest in analytics and there's companies, there's always edge cases. But the challenge is to understand when the person who's making that recommendation, who are they for? Mm-hmm. Because they're often building that recommendation for themselves based on what they learned. Mm-hmm. And then like, it doesn't make sense. Like I, I always find it funny where like, I read up when I started every founder, when they start a company, they read all these books. We're like, here's all the books that we should read about founders. Right. And you, they tell you about all the mistakes you're going to make. And then you start a company and then you consistently make the same mistakes that you told you not to make the mistakes. Mm-hmm. So you make all those mistakes and then you, the company succeeds and you're like, wait, I should write a book about not to tell people not to make the same mistakes I just made. And it just goes on another one of those books. And I think that cycle has been like literally the case. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. It's a, uh... It's a weird cycle. I think the better option, and I'm curious what you think on this as well. And, and then we can, we can keep talking about analytics, but um, I think it's better to like probably read biographies or nonfiction or even, even, even fiction itself to gather data. Uh, 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 like a somewhat well-known guy named Joseph Stalin. He was like a leader of this really small country named the Soviet Union. Um, he, he, uh, he said, uh, he said basically to the fact that uh, reading all these novels helped prepare you for the situation you've never seen but other people have seen it. And so you'll come in with kind of inspiration, ready to go. Um, so I don't know if you have this, a similar view in terms of how to set the foundation and kind of give yourself um, a foundation of things to, to pull from or how you go about kind of like priming the pump for your idea creation. Yeah, I have a similar version of view. I love reading, read history. Okay. Like I actually say, read the story of the person who created it and why they created it before you start using it. So I do a lot and it's actually really funny what you find out. You're like, oh my God, like actually my company narrator started because I was diving into like, why do we do data this way? And then you study the history and you're like, wait, like it's always some company led to something that the world decided because of some limitation technology to go down a pathway that they did. And I think having that understanding of why people make the decisions they made allows you to say, given the situation we're in, would I make the same decision? And often it's not. So I like 
reading history for that case. So like kind of similar to what you said with biographies, I love like history in general, um, understanding that world. Also, I like reading books that are more like just about like thinking and how we make decisions and less about startups. Because I think a startup is made up of like decisions. Like I, I recently read the book Breathe and I was like really obsessed with breathing for a while. But like understanding how to calm myself and understanding how this person figured out what works and what doesn't work really mattered to me. Yeah. And I think like that is the method that you kind of do work. Like I found that book to be significantly more helpful than like uh, Startup Life or like um, The Founder's Dilemma or any of these books that are like very geared toward sounding like they're talking about a founder. And you're like, yeah, but like when you wrote this book, that was like 2000.com like era, like yeah, you're this advice will not work for me. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's another thing I always say, stop listening to other people's advice. Like, I think it's so funny that we're like, you know what, Steve Jobs did this. And you're like, yeah, but Steve Jobs is not you. And this was a different time and a different era. And like Mark Zuckerberg broke Facebook out of his house. And I'm like, yeah, but that led to a changing world where you can now get VC money so you don't have to like suffer any ramen. Mm-hmm. And like, if you build Facebook again, it's not gonna work. There's a lot of things that led those found, and those are founders that we can easily remember because there's a great book called Ego's Enemy. It talks about these like very big founders that just make very good media presence, but they're not really good founders. They're not good leaders. Like, like Steve Jobs, yes, built something incredible, He's but every dick. person who was like Steve Jobs, like failed. Like, like the conversion rate of being like Steve Jobs to success is way lower. The conversion rate of being like uh, a more like same person like the founder of five energy to becoming a founder to successful like that rate is so much more likely but you're like but i'm gonna do like steve jobs and you're like you're just gonna be a dick and it's not gonna help your business yeah oh, he had he had wozniak i think that's a lot of a lot, a lot of people look at people in isolation like they were born that way and uh steve was very 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 lucky and he literally got kicked out and then he came back and he was slightly nicer to people and apparently even when he came back he was quite rude but here's a question that i know we wanted to ask um, should, <laughs> should, should, should people be founders? Like should, if someone has an idea to start a company, do you, what, what would be your first little bit of advice for them? I don't do it. <laughs> there don't you do go. It. Like, <laughs> is that simple? Uh, founding company sucks. Uh, I don't recommend anyone doing it. I think it's terrible. And here's an idea. Here's something I love to tell people. Here's the deal. Uh, if you're, if you're, if you're thinking, if you have a great idea, Google it. And if you Google it and you find a company that has that product and you don't even test that product and you don't use that game-changing product that was going to change the world, like your great idea for an app, if you don't even install it, if you don't use it, if you don't go work for that company, then the idea you had was actually worthless. Clearly, the idea is what mattered, not building it. Because you found it. You found the exact company that was going to change the world that you had imagined and you don't even try it. So... I actually think that you should, I did this as our narrator, like become an expert until you understand the shit way of doing something so much before you ever even think about doing, innovating in it, like live through the shit. Like I really, and as a founder, I really stand strong of like every founder should do every shit work in the company. Like you should experience every layer of work. Like I built a, the, the data stack nine times before I started a company to change it. Like nine times I like used every single tool out there to solve the problem. And only when I really couldn't find anything, then I, I went to look for companies that are trying to solve the problem because they've already raised money. They have hires way more in my impact in the world to go do that. 
And then when I didn't find a company that was doing it, then I was like, okay, I guess I got to start this company. So I think that's the pathway. And if you're thinking, wait a second, but if I join a company or I solve the problem there, I won't make money. I will let you know that starting a company is the worst way to make money. It is literally the worst way to get rich. If you want to get rich, go find a series B company that has built traction, that's growing really fast, join it early, get stocks, ride that wave and leave. You'll get a high salary, low risk, lots of money. That is the best way to get rich. Building a company, not the best way to get rich. It's a long endeavor, 20 years, and maybe. Like, don't do that. So I'm really just a big fan of like making sure you become an expert, understand the problem, and only start something when there's something really, a nuanced thing that you understand. Um, and if I say, don't be a founder, and you get to, and like you get to, the person, the people who are going to hear me say, don't do it, it sucks. 90% of people should be like, okay, this, I should not do this. And this other series B approach is better. But the expert who's like suffering through the problem and has spent years and is looking for a solution out of it and hates that they're like, this is the reality of the world. That person is not going to care about my words. And that person is going to start a company and that company is going to be great because that person is now an expert and they started it. And if that, if, if that person is listening in, send a picture of your success to us on Twitter. Uh, the links will be in the show notes because we would like to be proven wrong. Or, you know, I imagine you do too. I, I know I do. Um, when it, like kind of transitioning into this, this topic of being a CEO, I'm curious, what are, what are the things that you do focus on? We talked about like this busy idiot thing. And um, so I'm wondering in a given week, like what are, what are the key things that you're really hyper-focused on? What are the hats that you in particular wear? Yeah, so I'm a very different CEO um, because I think I will focus on major, like like in my time, I, I, I'm very bad at multitasking. So let's preface that. So I can't just be changing context every two hours, which is like a very failure with CEO to be fair, but whatever. Um, I'm also not the best at like um, communicating a lot of my ideas. So I think for me, based on where the company is, there might be a focus where it needs my attention and I will spend like a month or two on that focus. So it might be like onboarding. And then I will actually go in and onboard customers myself and go through the process and think through the problem and understand the nuance of it and then work with the team to figure out like, okay, here's my experience as a person who's like started this company and your experience and we're watching customers and I just do the work with the team. And we figure out how do we do it. And the benefit of being a CEO doing the work is I can mobilize a lot more. I can be quickly realize, oh my God, yes, you are right. We are understaffed. Let me move people around. Or actually sales is fucking up and giving us lead, uh, people with wrong expectations. So I now understand this inner thing of onboarding. And I'll just hop back and just really shift it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the level of things that I will, um, I will focus on. And I do still focus a lot on product. I think one of the things that I forget is that I still write code. I think my company, uh, we have a small company still, and we built Narrator as me being an expert in this data part. And I think it's really funny for people, they, uh, founders to be like, I'm just going to hire someone to else to do it. And in my case, I'm like, I can hire people to do almost everything else. But like, this is something that I am like, I love and I'm an expert in. Like, I can still keep doing it. This idea of like scale yourself. It's like, I don't need to. Like, I can actually entrust, I don't have to make this. I make like five decisions to the company, like my sales team and I trust them and I give them the autonomy to make decisions and the people and you give them freedom to make mistakes and say, oh, wow, we fucked up. Great. Let's throw in the garbage and restart. Like the people who fucked up should rebuild it because 
hiring someone else from the internal just throws away all the knowledge that you got from building it the first time. Mm-hmm. So like, there's no fire, there's no rush. There's no need to be like, ah, let's go keep going. Because of that, I get to still do some of the work that is technical and I get to focus on whatever that current situation is. And the way that I like to work is I like to get really just, really just involved and just, I do it. I literally just do it. When we had a, when we had a bug issue, we were having a lot of bugs in a product. Like I just said, great, I'll do support and I'll use the product. And I'll, if any customer reads a bug, I'll do it for them. And that level of frustration of me doing this work and being like, okay, like allowed me to kind of like mobilize more and more focus on like, okay, we don't need to build new features. Let's rebuild this core piece. And that rebuild has changed everything we do. Our core product is now really solid. Uh, but that comes out, it's, it's much harder for a non-involved CEO who's just making decisions to spend like a month focusing on something to actually change it. And I think for me, that's what I do. Mm-hmm. So it's, I don't know if it's gonna work for everyone, but for myself, I found that it creates a really good culture where everyone feels really connected. You mobilize and solve problems and you get cut away a lot of the bullshit. Cause I do feel like a lot of times if you worked in any org, like you're the, you're like dealing with the front, you're in, you're in the front line and you're like, this thing sucks. And then by the time it makes up to the CEO, it's like the world is roses and rainbows. Mm-hmm. And you're like, no, it's not. And then the CEO will re, we're going to reorg our structure and we're changing leadership to be horizontally driven instead of vertically driven. And everyone who's doing all the work is like, cool, keep playing with yourselves up there, but I'm going to just continue what I normally do. And none, none of my day is going to change. Mm-hmm. And I think like most good CEOs want that shit to know and they hope that it trickles up but like it rarely trickles up. Yeah. And I think the CEO going down there and spending time with like real people, like I think it just changes everything. Mm-hmm. I think I hundred percent agree. And I also think that there's an element of, I don't think you can, I think you can kind of BS your way, but I think to be a really effective leader, you, you do need to kind of know how everything works and have an interest in it. If you hire someone and they're doing something for your company and you're completely, like, let's say you're completely bored by sales, and so like the salesperson's trying to talk to you about something, but you're kind of like glassing over your eyes the entire time. Well, one, I, I doubt your, your company's going to do very well, but I think having like the inherent curiosity to want to learn about sales and like mirroring or like mentoring with that person who's an expert better than you and working with them to develop the process on sales. Like that's a really powerful thing. Like, so you don't like, I just want to like say that you don't have to have the knowledge, but you have to be really curious and learning and figuring it out and being a part of learning it because I think it makes you a better leader, like you're saying. And at the same time, there are, there's like a, a stratification you don't realize exists that makes it really hard for people, especially like new people coming in to talk to like a CEO or a founder. Like they feel like, oh, if I say the wrong thing, will they get rid of me? You know, I don't really know how it works here. And if like, it takes a little bit before people feel comfortable talking to you. Um, and, but if you're just there and you're working and you're near them, they'll just start telling you something that bothers them. Like imagine like you sit next to a coworker all day. How often are you just bitching about something? <laughs> like it yeah. just, it'll all come time. up and then, we, you, you know, even if like, there's no like concrete, like this is the thing that we can do. Cause there's, there's two different types of speaking. There's like speaking to resolve a problem speaking, just to kind of make, make a bond and feel heard. And so like, sometimes it's just like, yeah, you know, this really sucks how this, this thing's happening. Let's, let's look at that. Um, I, I definitely struggle from the want to solve every problem, <laughs> problem I, I hear. Uh, but so I, I try to remind myself that there's uh, two different modes. Um, and my wife helps me with that as well. Like, well, I'm just listening. I just need someone to listen. But um, and I do think that it's, I'll just say two quick things on that note. Um, like as CEO, like you can trust, like one of the things that CEOs get really good at is prioritizing. Like that is the essence of our job. So I think that people like are like, oh, it's not the biggest problem. Like, no, no, tell me, tell me every small problem. Because what I will be able to do is I'll be able to weave a plan that tackles these small problems because no one, 
like no big problem breaks a company. It's a series of small problems that always deteriorate the trust that you have with your customers. So that's what we need to really be talking about. And that's important. Um, so I do a lot of effort. And I always remind people like, you know, your sales leader is a brilliant sales leader and they're an expert, but they're an expert in selling something that's not your product yet. So when they're there, you should be involved with them like very hands-on because you've sold your product and they haven't sold your product yet. So like, there's a lot of value in that level of sharing. Mm -hmm. I, 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 there's kind of a horror story, but I know a guy or a lady or person who uh, would hire people and it's like, a, they would have their hand on that. Let's just keep talking about sales. They would be handling sales. And as soon as they hired someone, they would just go like wipe their hands from it and go look at something else and just say, figure it out. And it did not work out. <laughs> this person yeah. went through like three different salespeople and like half the team. <laughs> so I was like, just address this problem. Like you can't, you gotta like have an onboarding process. Yeah. Like they're an expert in it. But like, like you're saying, like they're not an expert in your thing. You gotta like onboard them and help them go from zero to, you know, 60 in what you're building. Yeah. And um, that so person's always like, oh, all these salespeople suck. And like all these sales <laughs> leaders suck. Yeah. Like, Someone else's problem. It? Yeah, it's like, uh, dude, like you're the problem. It's like, yeah. so yeah. If everywhere you go, everyone's an asshole you're probably the asshole you should think about that <laughs> that's like if like if i'm having like a bad good day keeps, yeah what it's a good rule of thumb yeah i mean it's not inherently true but it's good to, good to think about like am i being am i the jerk today um but one time we definitely wanted to talk about is how shopify and other platforms tend to um have you rebuild analytics have you like kind of redo things versus just having like a standard this is the analytic uh platform and it's kind of uniform across the entire internet, even as like the different customer bases could be somewhat dissimilar. The overall structure I imagine is, is quite similar in terms of like how you'd house it in a database or something. But I know we wanted to talk about like why that is uh, in your point of view and what we can do to kind of combat that or work against it. Yeah, so um, that's a really good question because I think most companies, uh, most startups in any company that just data thinks about this problem a lot. They're like, everyone is answering the same five questions. How come? where we have to invest in like a data warehouse and an analytics and blah, 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 to get to a place where we can answer the same questions. And the answer is a lot more nuanced. I think that everyone thinks that every business is the same and the data structures are the same and everything is the same, but it's not. Every business is actually slightly different. And the reason why it's slightly different is because otherwise it would, the business wouldn't exist. Mm. So your data actually is always a little bit different. The way you behave is a little bit different. Like an e-commerce company that sells shoes, an e-commerce company that sells hair product, like very, very different questions need to be asked. Even though it seems like you're still trying to ask like about returns and stuff, like everything is just changing. So I think trying to think of like using a product that's like analytics in a box, like for e-commerce really limits your idea of scope. Like you're just kind of like, you're getting the part that everyone has in common analytics about that. And that's like not innovation like that. You can like look at your Shopify dashboard and you'll get like the basic ideas there, but you want to focus on the questions and understanding where you're different because that's where innovation lies, where you can provide value. And the one thing about narrator, when we started kind of building it, we, want, we were trying to figure out like data should be similar, but questions should be different. How do we standardize all of data so we can answer any question? And what we realized was a standard that works is to treat everything in the world like kind of a conversation. Like what if we treat everything as like a noun with a verb and a time 
Like, and we ended up building a system around a time series table where your core entity is your customer, whether it's a person or a building or a car, and it does actions in time. And so you log data in that way. You kind of transform your data into that structure. So customer completes an order, purchases a product, returns a product, submits a ticket, starts a conversation, all the things that happen in your journey across nine or 10 different systems or more. And then you start being able to ask those questions and reevaluate, like does tickets impact how someone's likely to return? Some companies it might, some companies it might. But being able to ask those questions and reuse the same fundamental standard to really make better decisions, I think is really, really critical for companies. And this is kind of why like investing in data correctly provides a lot of value, but like kind of data theater doesn't. And this is why like people, Shopify can't give you really good, useful, valuable insights because they're operating for the 50% case where everyone's the same, which is never where innovation lies. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. It allows you to be specific in your questions and have that base to kind of have a, I don't know, I think of it as like a fallback, like a safety net of data going on that you can see. And then when you have a specific question, like one I was thinking of that I hear a lot of like, when's the optimal time to do like to have ads or whatever to like, when are people most, like a question I guess everyone's asking on some levels, like when, when do people most need what I have? And then I want them to have an ad so that they come find me, right? So then you can kind of reverse engineer that by asking, well, when does it seem that, like a question I'd ask is like, when do people buy my product the most, like based on what people are coming in right now? Like, that's a question that I think that you'd be able to answer. And then from there, you can start kind of asking even further questions to get to that question of like, when are people actually experiencing the problem that I'm solving? So I can get them the solution right when they're having it and solve it much quicker and alleviate the, that, you know, pain or suffering, whatever it might be. So like the specificity and the ability to go deeper and deeper and deeper seems to be like the really big value add that you have. Yeah, and that's critical. And even going higher, I think like I would advise people to never start from that question. I would go higher. I'd be like, okay, first of all, how many people that come back and buy a product again are seeing ads in between? Okay. Like, yeah. are they engaging with ads? Okay, well, if that number is zero, then like, who cares? If that number is 10%, then like, okay, well, my data is very skewed now. Okay, so maybe it's not even recurring purchases, it's first time purchases. Okay, now when, when are people, now what you actually want to optimize for is, given what's the best time to click on an ad to maximize the conversion rate to an order. So like, and whether it's first time order or current order or whatever that is. So it's like the user needs to click on an ad, um, see a, go to the website and then buy and not total numbers, but the conversion rate of the buy at specific hours when you click on an ad, does that matter? And honestly, you'll see that a lot of times the answer is no. Like, a lot of these things, especially when you start thinking about how, like, what the world behaves like, it probably shouldn't. You should probably ask, like, 50 questions and, like, 40 of them should be, it doesn't matter. Like, if everything you do matters, then, like, you're full of shit. This is the funny thing about, I always make fun of A-B testing for that reason. I'm proud of people where they're always like, oh, yeah, everything I did worked. And it's like, no, not, everything shouldn't work. Like, everything is not an insight. Like, just because you, like found waited for that moment like there's just error and variance in the nature of the world like the rigor required to answer questions correctly is a little bit more than just a specific spike and i think that's the key so i think what you'll see with a lot of customers is that you have to learn, get in the comfortable of like kind of scoping down what 
of the subset of people you're interested in and, and, and evaluating if there's any impact before you start saying, what's the best time? Mm. It's like, is ads even good? Like, let's figure out who we're talking to. And what yeah. often you, as you kind of figure it out, like people who are recurring purchasers who are receiving ads, cause I'm going to retarget them and I need their email to retarget them. So therefore let's see how many people are there. And you're like, okay, we're talking about like four 4% of our customers. Like, is it really worth it to invest in all this additional rigor to figure out what 4% of your customers are going to increase conversion rate by what? Let's say you were incredible and you figure out the optimal time and you increase it by 10%. That's like nothing. That's 0.4% increase on your uh, revenue. Like when you're a really big company, that matters. When you're a small company, that doesn't. So focus on like the bigger things. And I think that's a critical way of that level of like the conversation that I'm having right now with data. Like if I was using narrator, I would literally be answering these questions live and be like, okay, well, here it is. Okay, this matters, this doesn't matter. Let's focus on this, let's dive deeper and kind of go through that process in a couple of minutes to ensure that I can make the best decision. Mm -hmm. I think I might add like an an element to my podcast where I just have someone screen share what the thing is so people can actually see what we're we're describing because I think that'd be a lot of fun. But it does sound like, so I'm not deep into data analytics, though I do like and use data analytics. But one, one question I always ask myself is how can you develop grit and a failure tolerance? And it does seem that given the nature of like how you're describing it with the how many questions you ask and how often it doesn't work out that this would be a really fun way to like have people uh, like brute force and build that, that type of resilience because of the nature of how often they have to like really think and ask a question, which then improves. Cause I think there's a quote about this, but I'm going to steal it myself. Where it's like the quality of your life is determined by the quality of your questions. So you have that benefit. You have the, the grid of like, just keep asking until you and keep changing the permutation to learn more about the, this uh, data set. And then the fact that like everything keeps like not working out, um, it, it, that seems like a, a, this would be like a really cool way to like, uh, to build that in people that would like that while also uh, improving their analytical skills. Yeah. hundred percent. It's really, it's super funny. Cause when we work with customers, like there's, this, we've kind of shifted back and forth. So one people are in companies are trained to not ask questions. Like actually we are, we data analytics often is so hard to do correctly that you just give up on asking questions. That is so common that people just give up on asking questions. If you're in an org and you're watching this and, you, and you're like, oh, every question I ask takes two weeks to a month and then I have follow-up questions another two weeks to a month, like you're going to stop caring. So that's the first thing. Second thing is one point in that narrator, we did this thing where like, okay, we know the first like 10 questions that somebody's going to ask in narrator because we're like kind of just seeing enough customers and we know the questions that kind of tend to like provide value why don't we just tell them to ask the questions that provide value first so that when they start, they're like, yeah, it's, it's kind of shitty when you can start using narrator and you're like, oh, that doesn't matter. Oh, that doesn't matter. Oh, that doesn't matter. And you're like, wait, what matters? And you're like, and I'm like, well, you have to get better at asking questions. Um, so I was like, what if I just give you stuff that's going to matter? And it failed uh, because people needed to go through the questions that they were like itching that often don't matter. Like everyone's always asking, like, does gender matter? Oh, I want to know, like, does ad source affect churn? It's like, it will never affect churn. It will never. But like people, the marketing team wants to say that we're decreasing churn by getting better customers. It's like, sure. And I think you have to go through, you have to be able to actually answer all these shitty questions first. So then you can focus on the good questions that provide value. Otherwise people just get distracted. It's interesting. Um, 
this is a, a, like a very big tangent, but uh, one that I definitely wanted to ask you, which is uh, in, in like this brief synopsis or in one of your interviews, you were talking about becoming essentially like the, like an operating system for science teams. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if you could just unpack that a little bit more because on a surface level, like an operating system to me is like, you know, Ubuntu or Linux or like, you know, uh, Apple or something like that. So then, which I imagine like you, I mean, I, I'm sure this is like an analogy or something, but I'm curious, like, what does it actually mean to become an operating system for science teams? Yeah. So I think an operating system for me is a way that you communicate with technology. Okay. So if you think about it, like, um, when you use your Mac or use your, your, uh, Ubuntu or you use Linux or you use, uh, windows, like they're all different ways of interacting with the computer. Okay. That makes sense. And they all have different benefits and downsides and they have different like controls and regulations and stuff like that. I think that an interface of way of communicating with something has, it has an opinion like a Mac has a lot of opinions and has a lot of restraints and constraints. And it tells you live within my world and you'll be happy. And Linux has its own constraints and it says live within my world and you'll be happy. And I think that there's ideas of tools, which is the difference between an operating system and a tool. A tool is like, I make pretty plots. I can do this. And you're like, you can use me how you want, but I have no opinion on what, if we do it right or wrong. So the reason why we like to look at ourselves as an operating system for data is because we have a lot of opinions and we try to help you do things correctly. And we are a way for you to interface with your data that is seamless, that is fast, that is repetitive, that is really quick, that is very insightful and very enables you to learn more. And that's kind of the key. Like I, a, good, a good outcome is I talk to a lot of data companies and I say, what's your goal? And they're often the goal of most data companies is for people to use their data product. Or if you're an internal data team, the goal is to del- deliver data. And I'm like, that is a shitty goal. Like our goal is to make sure people made the right decision. So like if somebody uses our tool wrong and makes the wrong decision, it's our tool's fault. Our tool should be nudging them along the way to do the right, to ask the right question in the right way to make the right decision. It is the tool's fault that you used it wrong. And that is the key difference between a quality product and a shitty product is that we take responsibility to make sure that you answer the question correctly and ask the right question. And I think that's our goal. And I think that should be most of data team's goals in general too. Your goal as data team should not be to build dashboard. It should not be to deliver data. It's to be, it's, it should be to ensure that your team is making, or every person in the company is making the correct decision. That's a high bar. And I think there's a lot of things you have to do to ensure that bar actually ends up working. So for us, it's from the way we force you to structure your data to guarantee data integrity, the way we do all these checks to ensure that accuracy, the way that we force you to ask a question that actually makes sense, the way that we don't let you to ask questions that are like, are not actually reasonable to like, just, we don't let you ask bad questions. Often people are like, how come I can't do this? And I'm like, well, that, let's kind of think about that. Cause I think like the narrator is going to block you from doing bad questions. Let's see why that's a bad question and how you can fall into a lot of traps. We limit, we don't allow you to create open-ended visualizations because they're distracting. We like to limit you to see only bars, lines, and scatter plots so that you know how to read them and you're not constantly misreading plots. We put text and interpret the data for you and provide the conclusion and then the evidence and then data is third. So you actually are starting from a place where you understand what you're about to read, not just like leave the plot to come up with your own conclusion. Uh, we need to ensure that analysis is rerun every single week. So if the data changes because your customer changes, we notify you. 
Like we need that whole thing to be able to be shared in a story format that you can be confident that anyone can read it and reach the same conclusion. We don't want like just random screenshots of plots and putting in a PowerPoint that like you already built to tell your story. We want it to inspire new stories and new questions. We want you to be able to ask any questions so that an e-commerce person can leverage questions that a financial firm would ask, but enable all that world to be seamless on your own business. All this stuff has to happen. And there's like a million more things so that I, so we can reach our goal to make sure that you make the best decision. It is way easier for me to give you a plotting tool and build your dashboard than for me to help you make the right decision. And I built an entire company and all these things that, have, that we think about and spend all our time researching and diving into to ensure that every customer using narrator is making the perfect, like the best decision that we can guide them to. It definitely sounds like pretty much every company would need narrator. I imagine since we've been talking about specificity, are there, is there like a particular target profile that you're focusing on right now? Yeah, we like to focus on uh, heads of data of like series uh, B or later companies mm -hmm. um, with teams under 15 people. So like small teams in data, big impact, high pressure, dealing with lots of questions and a company that's already kind of started investing in data, but is struggling. And that helps us to kind of come in and we are like, again, we talk about answering the right question. We talk about providing value. The way we, um, we like our proof of concept, which is like a sales way to prove that you should buy a product is we come to you and we say, let's come up with like three or four questions that are top of mind right now that are important. So don't matter how complicated they are. Let's just take the three, four most important questions. And in two sessions, each one is 45 minutes. We'll show you how those questions can be, entire narrative can be set up and those questions can be answered. And that's the, we're going to provide value to help you make sure you make the right decision on day one before you even buy the product for questions that are timely. We're not going to be like, here, let's build all this garbage. No, no, we'll just focus on what is important to you. And then when you see the value, then we can onboard and we can set up your, the rest of your system and get you to ask any question. How much of it is it custom? Like, so similar, like, so we go down the turtles and we have Shopify and we have like their basic out of the bundle analytics. Then we have yours, which is more specific. So it's more specific turtle, but then there's still some customization in there when you talk to the different teams to listen to their needs and then make sure there's, it's, it's being answered. So how much of it is standard versus customized to the individual people? I know that you have like a core product, but I'm just curious, like how much does it vary in terms of the customization for each individual team? Yeah, so we do zero customization per team. Okay. Um, our core product is a standard way of thinking about data. So what we okay. really have mastered is understanding change. So we can understand time and change really, really well. That's what our core does. And what we train customers to do is ask questions in terms of change. So like a question, like we talked about, like email attribution, like that, like how does an order to do a next order, how does viewing an ad in, the, in between impact likelihood for you to have a next order? Okay. That's a question that's open-ended, but that same exact structure of that question is the same question as saying like, how does uh, viewing the FAQ site increase your likelihood to submit another ticket? It's like different systems, different data, different pieces, different concepts, different core, but the same structure of understanding change. And we have like, we help people ask and answer all these different questions that are related to your uh, core customer and that ends up working really well. So you end up getting this like really comprehensive product that is very open-ended, but it's very opinionated so that you're kind of like within, like you're taken care of. So you can actually answer any question you have, put all your data in it, and you can do that really quickly and answer any question, but it requires you to think about questions a little bit differently and ask good questions. Okay, that makes sense.
my questions are in product nature, but I imagine we'll, we'll go down the road too much on like what other things uh, you have in, in store for us. But um, so I wanted to, to kind of circle back around and talk, ask you some, some questions uh, as a CEO. Um, yes. So there, in some of your interviews, you, you talked about some of the kind of the horrible stuff that's happened. Uh, and most of the time people don't talk about these things. It's always like the grass is great. And then tomorrow it's a blight. <laughs> it's like, well, if you just told us, uh, but at one point in time, uh, things were not great for narrative. And um, you had to like, people went from like uh, normalized salaries, like part-time salaries to not part-time, like a, like a to normal, minimum wage, minimum wage. Thank you. Like um, to, then you had to lay people off. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm curious, were you able to hire people back as things started to rebound? Again, but I do think that like, especially for us, it was like six months in between from like us nearly dying to getting money. Um, it would have not made sense for people to just change their lives. Yeah, that makes sense. The, um, did you, um, I guess you were a reference for them. So you helped them move on and make it positive in that regard. And so you're in this like kind of a pit. How did you know that was even worth salvaging at that moment? Like with how bad everything was going, like burn rate, all these things, having to have people go to minimum wage and then having to fire them. I think at, at the point of firing people, you had probably a sunk cost fallacy, which uh, fortunately worked out for you. But like, how did you know it was even worth continuing? Yeah, I think that is like the moment where you start firing people, the moment it's like, wow, like these people trusted me and they put a lot of faith in me and I disappointed them. Like, am I the leader who's going to be helping this company continue to go? It's like, you doubt everything about yourself. You doubt everything about the company, like why it's so hard. You doubt about like the world, like no one's going to see your vision. You find a million and one, a million, one, a million and one reasons to like say it's not worth it. Um, however, I still think that like you go back into why did you start the company? So I didn't care about money because I was doing, I could have stayed at WeWork and done incredibly well. Um, I didn't care about like status or position because I actually don't think people should have statuses. So the reason why I started Narrator was about a problem that I wanted the world to see, a problem uh, that I wanted the world to no longer have. And I knew the consequences of making bad decisions and I saw and I saw no one in the world trying to solve that. And I knew that bad decision was a function of, and like this retraining of culture to not ask questions was a function of data issues. So I think, I think when you remember, when you remind yourself of like why you did it and how big you're trying to change, and if you don't succeed, like what happens to the world? Like what people go back to asking bad questions, these tools and these companies start continuing to make money off of like you making just like theater and like the next generation doesn't know how to ask a good question anymore just live mindlessly, just create, looking at random numbers and pretending like we, all these storytelling is happening. Like, is that the world I want to see for my children? Sucks. Like, and I've seen people get fired because of bad data. I've seen people like get hired because of bad data. I've seen so many bad decisions happen. Like, because somebody doesn't know how to use data or somebody misread a plot or somebody got misled, all these different visual, like there's so many issues that happen in the world. And I honestly do not want to continue seeing that. So for me, it was like, I guess I got to keep doing it until every last dollar is done. Like, but that was, and that's why I told my team, I was like, listen, like, if we want to build another company, fine. Like, because people were at that time were like, we should pivot, we should build something simpler. And I was like, no, let's just 
keep going until this company runs out of money and dies. And if we want to work together, we can start another company that does something different. But like we set out with a mission to solve this problem and like till the last dollar, we, until we can afford to do it, let's do it. Like, I'm not saying sacrifice your life. I'm not saying die. Like, I'm just saying like, we got to keep going. And that's what we did. We like, literally were like, like well, it was like, it was counting down like four or five months. It was like, that's it. It was like four or five months of money. We're going to keep going. And we did. And it paid off. So I think that's kind of the, like, the story that we had. Um, I know point where I think any of us in like actual, like, I, I don't want anyone to listen to this to say like, oh, we should all suffer. No, no, no. We didn't suffer. We were eating healthy. We were having our families. Like, we did not... Like we, the people who went down to, everyone who went down to minimum wage, we had all made a decent amount of money in our last jobs that we were very comfortable moving down to minimum wage without changing our lifestyle. Uh, and then as soon as we got money, we brought everyone back up to salaries. Like, I don't like that. And actually would advise never, like if, if we had to ever like, if my family was ever going to be affected by that or I was going to like eat, my lifestyle was going to change or I was going to starve myself, like, no, fuck companies. Let those things burn first. Like, I think you have a mission, but they're not your, like, I, I hate people to say, like, this company is your child. I'm like, no, it's not. It's a piece of paper that says you're doing a problem. Like, you can set that on fire. Who cares? Like, it is the collection of people that make a company. And it's like these people that come together to do it. So, like, don't ever die or don't ever have your team sacrifice themselves for the company. I actually hate companies. Like, I've been talking to people about Tesla recently. And everyone's like, oh yeah, it's customary to work 12 to 14 hours. And I'm like, that just sucks. <laughs> like, I never want to build that. Like, I never, if you give me a chance, like build Tesla. And I'm like, I would never, I'd rather never, I'd rather like not have a company than build, than be looking at a company where everyone is being abused and working insane hours to like, I think it's, I think there's positive in the world, but I think like, you don't need a trillion dollar CEO and people working 12 hours a day. I would, I, would, I would double the team and have everyone work six hours and lose half a trillion dollars. I know Boohoo, poor Elon only has 200, 200 billion left. Yeah. Well, it's on paper, right? It's not actually liquid. Well, I'm not defending Elon, but I just want, like, I want to make sure I understand this right. It's just on, on paper. He's not actually liquid to a trillion. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, and they do all that, like, that stock manipulation stuff to make him rich. And then he buy, buys oh, yeah. against it's, it. It's, don't even, yeah. That, that, there's a whole thing there. Don't. <laughs> yeah, and that's another thing too. Another thing that we actually explain to a lot of actually as founders, I think actually everyone here who's either thinking about joining a startup, we do this a narrator where I say like your stock is not. I actually think your stock should not be part of your package. Your stock is an addition. Like, do not think that you're taking this much money in stock and therefore you should take less salary. Take the salary that you need. Stock is a cherry on top because stock is not real. And the earlier stage, like likelihood for that stock to be real is so bad, it's so long. And even when it gets to being real and you can like, as people from WeWork who know, like there were million dollars of fake money that went to nothing <laughs> for every person who was like early employees. Like stock is not real. And as a person narrator, we give everybody stock. We give everyone a decent amount of stock, but I always tell them like, don't look at that as part of your package. Like focus on the we're actually doing for you because like yes we can that money could be worth millions but like that's like in 20 years so <laughs> hmm. if you, you have you have families and kids and lives and decisions you made like paper money is not something you want to be considering in that decision Sounds that would suck
went not not to keep like beating this bush, but I'm curious when you when you were at that moment where it was really bad, were there any indications or was the the problem you're trying to solve in somewhat of a state of solved or was there still more development to even get into a stage where it could be solved? Did that make sense? Like, yeah. was it, was it done? Was it mostly done? Was it still like a theoretical could get built or, or was it completely just faith? Let's just do it to the end. Um, we were always making progress toward like, so I think it's really interesting when you think about the problem that we were trying to solve and then the business we're trying to build. Hmm. So the problem we're trying to solve is a way to get this single standard structure to answer any question. So we need a way to answer any question. Um, that is the problem that we were like, it was always like, I can answer 80%. There was like something always like missing in it. Um, so by the time we got to the place where we were, it was like, okay, I can see how this can answer any question. But now it's like, I need to teach people how to think differently ask questions differently, answer questions differently and use a new tool. And it was like only solved the problem. It didn't build the world around it that everyone needed to do the work. So we were like, it was like a transitionary period where we're like, okay, we see a tiny bit of hope because we know that this could be solved, but now we have to do the hard part, which is build a company. So like, you go from solving a problem to building a company, they're two very different steps mm-hmm. and they take years. And so we had just solved the problem. Actually, a lot of companies, like most companies actually start from building a company because the problem is already solved. Like they're like, we're a direct consumer for cars. It's like, sure. You have the part, the problem you, you there's, you can already set up the most of the business part and then you solve the problems as you go. When you're a technology innovation, you have to solve the innovation first and then you build the business mm-hmm. and then you solve all the problems as you go. So we had just built the innovation and now it's like, how do you make this a business? Okay, that makes um, sense. And that was the second level. So there was like hope, people believed it. Um, it is still magical. Like, I don't know if you, if you ever looked at, if anyone has ever looked up into any of my demos online or has read anything about people seeing my demos, like this ability to ask any question and watch me give you a full story answer in a minute live. And I do this with, ask me literally any question. I think creates a new feeling of like a different feeling for data people, at least of hope of the future where data will be a lot more malleable. So people can ask and answer more questions and like decisions can be made because right now it's like rigid as fuck. Yeah. Hmm. I was thinking about the future and uh, Westworld and Rehoboam. <laughs> it's like yeah. kind of making the opposite of Rehoboam where instead of getting like an output and answer of the solution, you can, uh, I guess in the end, it would be the same. Um, I'm tangenting. Cause like, if you, uh, if you go down your, 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 you can ask any question of any outcome and you have a computer that can take all the data and then give you an outcome in the end, isn't it like the same thing? Cause you're, you're able to ask a question and get the answer or it's giving you the answer based on its own. That's why that's a weird tangent. Giving the answer. And and, and this is the thing that I, I always say to people just in general, let's do a quick tangent to AI and the best AI is us. And no AI is going to ask as good, as specific, as nuanced questions as humans will. So if there's an infinite number of questions, no computer can answer, can test all of the possible questions. And if you, even if you get computers to do that, like it is not at the right time, at the right moment where you need the information to be asked. So you'll never get better than a, a person asking a question that's important for what they're currently doing to make a decision with an AI. 
It's just like too many possibilities. So I think that's the key is building a world where you, the human can still ask what's important and timely and the computer can help evaluate it versus trying to remove that human from the puzzle and mm-hmm. replace it with a shitty AI. And we're so far from building an AI that's actually not trash. Like think about Alexa, you could, she can't understand, Alexa, turn off all the lights. It's like, there's no room called all. And you're like, oh my God. Like that's the that billion dollar, that's a trillion dollar companies of work right there and a million and hundred thousand engineers. So I would say stop. I actually am really anti-AI in general, even though I used to work in AI and missile defense and I was an AI engineer for most of my career. I just really don't think, I think we use AI to like as a stop go to like try to not think. And more companies, like if you think about the companies like budget and time dedicated, it's like setting up data tracking so that we can collect more data. Everyone wants to collect more data. And then there's like, prepare data so we can answer more questions. And it's like build dashboards so we can self-serve our own analysis, build data science algorithms so that we don't have to ask questions, buy AI tools. And then there's like this little sliver that's like do data analysis to make better decisions. That's providing me the value. Everything else here is means to an end. And it used to be that this part was so expensive that you wanted to, people started doing it. But now we're doing all this stuff that's more expensive than the actual data analysis work and we forgot the human being who's really good at asking questions, who's trained to answer questions. And now we're trying to replace it with some garbage algorithms or some like more and more dashboards. So someone who's not trained to ask questions can slice and dice and like come up with a story that this data does tell them something. Mm-hmm. Like I'm in a believer that we should get wait 90% of your money should be spent on data analysis and analysts to answer fucking questions to that provide value for the business and everything else is theater. And yes, maybe if you're Google or you're Facebook, you might need to invest more in AI and whatever it is, but you're not. And so focus on data analysis. And Google and Amazon, all of them do it. They have like thousands of data analysts. So like they just can afford to do that also because they have crazy money. But like we, as a lot of founders, I rarely see companies having data analysis. I see companies doing AI, dashboarding, analytics, engineering, tracking, buying a million dollars worth of tools and no analyst to interpret it. And that's sad. Yeah. It sounds like Rehoboam is like a thousand years away, if ever, where the tools that you're building can be used now into the blend entire, into our entire lifetimes, probably. Yeah. Rehoboam's like a fantasy so. thing. Yeah. Um, for, for hiring, when you do hiring, um, is there a question you like to ask for analytics? Since you're such an analytic company, I imagine you, you have a, a bias towards people who are very logical and, uh, and, and critical in that way. Are there questions that you like to ask to, to see to the quality that people can ask questions and, and break down problems? Are there like, yeah. like ways that you break down? I don't know if there's like a set question or series of questions you'd like to ask, or if there's just a, a pattern of way of having them expand, ex- expand their thought for you to see it. I'm just curious, like how mm-hmm. you actually with, with all that, you know, look at another person and try and assess their ability to be analytical? Yeah, uh, same question. I usually ask a series of these, this exact question. And um, I say like, oh, tell me one time you, uh, you made a decision that was driven by data and everyone has like a million answers for that. And then I hear that and I say, okay, now after you made that decision, how did you know it was right? Like, that's the question I really care about is how did you know the decision was right? And what I see a lot is that no one evaluates whether their decision was actually right or wrong. 
And if it was wrong, like, because, you know, you never, never evaluated if it was right or wrong, but then you never undo. And it's like, this is like a fundamental problem with a lot of people with data. It's like data-driven decisions, but like there's no, like, was it the right decision? Because we think that we're perfect. We're like, oh, we use data. And therefore, of course, the decision we made is perfect. It's like, no. Look, and let's see if that data, if, if the decision you made was right. And often actually evaluating if a decision is right is harder than knowing. Like once you're able to evaluate if decisions are right, it makes using data to, to see if a decision should, will be, would be right much easier. So like when we started Narrator, our focus was actually on understanding history and saying, helping people understand, did that decision actually matter? Did this change matter? Did this behavior change? And we got so good at that, that we're like, oh, this is how you should ask questions before you start. Will this matter is the same question as did this matter? It's literally the same question I look at historical analysis. And by asking, will this matter can save you from building it or not? But understanding how to evaluate if something worked or something was right is a very hard thing that I find most people tend to um, never even think about. They're always surprised. They're like, wait, what? I'm like, so you looked data and now you did it. How do you know it worked? And the most common answer that I think is terrible is like, we A-B tested it. And I'm like, do you understand how A-B testing works? Because like A-B testing was built, like they're like, we use it optimizely. And I'm like, that was built by Google engineers for a Google environment where they can afford to like do static tests. You don't have a trillion users using your product every day. So like just time variance is huge. Like your conversion rate hasn't stabilized as Google's has over like 50 years. Like, therefore you actually can't use the same principles because like I said, study history, it was built for a different situation that you're not in. And therefore like, we can show you how that didn't actually lead to the right decision. But yeah, but that's like, sorry, I got a tangent. But those are the questions I always like to ask is like, just how did you know that decision you made was right? Mm -hmm. My answer would have been, cause I lived, but I'll save that for the post discussion. The, uh, but I, mine is assumption as well. Um, is it, we're about to go to our time. Is it cool if I ask you like, there's like three yeah. more questions. Okay. I just always yeah. like to respect them. All right. So I looked at uh, your postings and hopefully I was looking at your updated job people that you're looking for. And I saw one for, I just picked one that had like the most experience you're looking for. And so I was just, I wanted to ask you about it. So maybe someone listening in would be interested. So I saw one for a platform infrastructure engineer and hopefully you're still looking for them or them. Yes. Okay. So I, of the, on the job posting, I thought was pretty good in terms of like what they're looking for skill-wise. But one thing that I always think is quite lacking when people have job postings is they don't really talk about what they'll be doing in terms of an experience of like what, what it's like their first week or the first month. Like what are the things they get to build? What are the things, what problems do they get to solve? That type of thing, which I think is really exciting for an engineer. And so I'm curious for a platform infrastructure engineer, and you can check out the, the, the link will, there'll be a link to the show notes so you can see if you have the technical abilities. Like what would they be doing the first week within 30 days uh, within the first 90 days, what are they be doing or be able to build or what problems would be they addressing with, uh, with, for you? Yeah. Awesome. So that's one of the most important roles we have. And you'll be working with one of the smartest people I've ever met. Uh, and it's like Michael Mason. And um, the, the role is, if you imagine um, narrator, we are interested data. This idea of going from a question to an answer, there's code, but there's also like manipulating data and moving it around. So if you think about it, we have a system, then we have a queue that we need to like manage our queries that we're hitting to another system. And we have a cache layer that's holding data. 
Then we need to make sure that everything's encrypted and stored separately so that every company has unique endpoints and unique worlds. Then we need to make sure that when you ask a question, the access is managed and, the, and you're, are you getting the data that you need access to every single step of the way? And that data then gets, just like so many things have to happen in the system to go from like your warehouse to the answer. And the job of the platform engineer is to really enable that fundamental infrastructure to be enable, uh, to enable us to do that so that as software and building engineering, we don't have to worry about all these layers in between. Like, I don't want to be thinking about like, oh, should I check if the user has access to this? I want to be able to say like, give me this and then get a return that says, you can't access that. Or I can say, give me all the data, the data sets I have. And it returns, okay, you only have access to these data sets. We gave you the ones that you only have access to. So as software engineers, and when you're building, you don't have to consider all the management in the process. I want to say, give me this data. And it goes, okay, here's the data because it was cached instantly. Or, oh, we're going to, there's a million queries being run at the same time. We're going to manage that for you. And just you keep waiting until we give it to you. So that level of infrastructure required will be critical. A couple of the features that we're working on now for infrastructure is like, how do we provide people with like a GitHub integration so that they can like make sure that their data is reviewed and everything that's like codified is version controlled in GitHub for people that want it. How do we allow just a more comprehensive role-based uh, system so that the user can say, let this person read these data, but not dive into the data underneath it. I want you to be able to read the conclusions, but not see the data. Like how do we allow the user to do that? And how does that get built in a way where it's not like software engineering, constantly checking, can I view this? If yes, show this. How do we build that infrastructure that like is managed for you? And that's kind of the platform engineer. It's kind of working in that environment to use the tools and the, and the available on the internet to manage like load, security, access, and um, communication so that when you're building part of the product, you're not, you're not worrying about all that stuff. Like I don't have to worry about servers and like, will my endpoint be deployed? I just say like, here's my code, go. And like our platform engineer has set up systems where it's like spins up endpoints for every company and it's unique and handles bouncing and scaling and minusing and like access control. So if the user can access it, I don't have to worry about any of that stuff and it gets in and my code gets run and it returns the data. And if the data is large, I don't have to worry about that because it does all this redirecting and caching and blah, blah, blah. Like a million and one things happen, but all I have to worry about is the little piece of code that I wrote that does the operations and the thing system that facilitates that is the thing that you as a platform engineer will get to work on and get to shape. Um, and you are usually the most beloved person in terms of um, software. Like every software engineer loves the infrastructure people. Is there, uh, so when the first 30, like would be like the first, like they start this week, what would you have them doing? Like the first I part. think the first, there's a lot of learning involved in the beginning. I think you've spent a lot of time understanding um, uh, the just dynamic of the world that exists. So like, I think the first probably week or two is uh, understanding the landscape and then maybe being some uh, paired in some of the projects. And then uh, probably working on like, I'm, I would guess like, converting a system so that it's multi-regional versus single regional. And if you are platform engineer, you probably know what that means. But if you're not, it just means that if someone in China or India is hitting your servers, they're using servers that are hosted in India instead of the current US servers that we're using. Mm -hmm. um, there are projects like that that they will be kind of beginning to tackle and based on like kind of their skill set and scope will be 
whichever one they're more interested in, tackle first. Makes sense. Actually, well, anyone excited, uh, send an uh, you know, application and reference the show if you heard, if you're, if you heard about it from here. Um, yeah, that'd be awesome. I get no affiliation. I just like to know it works out. All right. So then I just have some uh, rapid fire questions I like to ask everybody. Uh, since you're a tech technical person, if you were at zero, you were sitting out there and you have a problem, let's assume you have a problem that you want to solve again, what would be your go-to st tech stack um, that you would use to solve? I know they like, we're being very generic because you built yeah. tech stack based on what you're building. I'm just curious, like what's your go-to thing that you're, I would, you're familiar I would with? I would actually build it the most low tech tech stack ever. I would just be like Zapier. I would try to actually build it without writing code. Mm. I'd actually like spend most of my time building it with like, by stitching together like, um zapier retool everything that's available google sheets xml if i need to write it like a lot of markdown render like i would actually spend more time trying to figure out how to build it without building a single line of code than writing code hmm. code is very expensive like i don't want to think about servers and databases like all that shit takes a lot of time like i would actually be using google sheet as my server as my database if i was building a product again to test it hmm. That's be, I'll re, of course, I've rebuilt it as we go, but like yeah, yeah, in yeah. the beginning, I would use like concept. the most low code, te, uh, like least tech possible. That's interesting. That's a, uh, that's an interesting answer. Um, what is your go-to music to listen to while working? Oh, I'm terrible at this thing. This is going to be an embarrassing answer. Um, based on the different kinds of mood, I'll either play like pop music or like I play a lot of childhood Disney when I'm like really in thinking moods. And if a it's problem pops. is really... What? Like kid bop? Not kid bop. No, no, like like the like like all the Disney songs from like Aladdin oh. and like oh, those Lion are good. King. And like just like the old, old things that like remind me of my childhood. And then if it's really intense, I do a lot of classical piano playing. That's like my levels of, of working. It's either like or and in between it, I do love international pop music. So I'll do like K-pop or uh Hindi music or music that I can't understand, but it's just very a beat. Mm -hmm. Um those are like usually my tech, my stack of music layers. Is there a band you'd recommend that you don't think gets enough credit? Even if it's um, just classical? Uh, I think that like, I wouldn't say, I, don't, I can't think of bands on my head. I feel like it's a, like a top, but I do think people should, everyone should listen to a couple of like different cultures songs. Like mm -hmm. listen to a couple of K-pop songs, listen to a couple of Hindi songs, listen to a couple of Arabic songs and just see what it sounds there. It's like, there's all these little takes that I think like people might like. Mm -hmm. I like the sitar from India. It's like yeah. uh, nine strings. And it's mm -hmm. like the craziest thing to see someone play it. It's like, you think their, their hands are gonna set on fire. Um, yeah. So one of your go-to recommended books is the Chris Voss book, Never Split the Difference. And since you recommend it so much, I'm curious, is there a particular part or aspect of the book that you think people would get the biggest impact out of that, uh, just in your own experience that you think the people would generally like the most? I think the book itself, yeah. definitely recommend it, 100% guarantee would recommend it as well. I'm curious, is there, there a part that you like in particular? Yeah, I think, I think what it does, it teaches you how to actively listen and to mm -hmm. try to get to the core underlying problem. I think that like when you realize that the problem is not about you and you're not trying to solve a problem for someone, it's this like thing where you're actively listening and helping someone get through their problem. I think that's a key thing for most CEOs, relationships, and everything you need to do. Like a lot of times people come to you, like there's like a joke in, in, in saying as CEO, you're also a part-time therapist. Because a lot of times people come to you not because they don't know how to solve a problem, because they're frustrated and everything is dire and, and you just got to kind of like listen. 
and actively listen and use the techniques in the book to kind of like help them get to a point where they realize that like they kind of clear that fog in their head and then they're like, oh yeah, I know what to do. And like often they're not coming to look for your advice or like your wisdom or your ideas. They just really like need to vent and you can help move out of their way, help people get move stuff out of their way, but help them um, figure out what they're trying to get to. And I think that's um, why I really like that book. It's just getting that in the habit of actively listening is uh, I think a skill set that most people just kind of ignore. Is there a technique that you use more than other ones? Or do you use mirroring the most? Do you use labeling the most when you're getting the, trying to get people from, yeah. or you just kind of use them all roughly equal when you're trying to I listen do, to your team? I do. I'll alternate a lot between different techniques. Uh, I do love um, initiating a strong note and I do love uh, labeling. So like, I'll, I'll actually push for like that intensity. Like, like, are you not interested in continuing this thing? Like, are you like, I would actually start like if someone's like really frustrated, I'm like, okay, um, are you saying that you don't want to do data anymore? And they'll be like, no, 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 no. And then like, I think it snaps people into like thinking about like, what do they want instead of like what they're annoyed at. So I really love that technique. And I do love um, just um, labeling or summarizing in different ways saying, it just like, it sounds like you're having that time. And the six second wait. I think people will forget that part of the book where I think somebody will be like, oh, it's just so frustrating. And you just kind of wait and someone's like, yeah, so like, here's what's happening. And then you just continue going on their own. And you're like, it happened? And they're like, yeah, like it keeps getting worse. And mm -hmm. um, again, I think just making sure that you remember that it's not about you. Like that's the big thing that I think like the active listening helps you do, which is remind yourself that it's not about you. They're not complaining. They're complaining at you, not about you. And they're not needing your help to solve it. They are just complaining at you. Mm -hmm. And your job is to pay attention, hear the important pieces and help them get to where they need to get to. And there's nothing to do with you. Awesome. So CEO is so useless. Yeah. Uh, what, uh, speaking about problems, what is a problem that you're currently having? So it could be the thing that you're now focusing on for the next month, but that you'd love people's help with. Yeah, um, uh, we have a very, 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 very big problem with uh, getting people to try Narrator. So we have a very good way of showing you the value of Narrator. We know that once you try Narrator, you're very, very likely to buy. And we know that every, we have had zero returns. Everyone who buys Narrator loves the product. But Narrator has this, it's this different thing. And I think companies are so scared of different. And because it's different, you also can't imagine it. So like we can convince one person and they get them to imagine narrator, but then we have to convince everyone to kind of imagine narrator. Mm -hmm. So for, if you've seen a demo, narrator does look a little bit like magic and it looks a little bit not trustworthy because you're like, how the hell do you do this? Like, what's the catch? And our claim to answer any question is like insane for like data companies spend years building and having thousands of data engineers model data. So I do think it's an interesting problem for, I always like to think of creative solutions for people to answer questions. Our current creative solution is to bribe them. If, uh, if you refer someone and that person ends up trying narrator, like we qualify them and they try it by just connecting their warehouse, which is like literally they just tell us, connect to their data and they tell us what questions they want to answer, we'll give you $750. So if you can refer us to head of data and just send us that, whoever refers them, we'll give you $700 to do it. 
And I think that's kind of the level of confidence we are in, like, just give it a try. But I think everyone's a little bit scared of something new and something different. And I think that's part of the thing that we're trying to overcome. Excellent. Uh, so last question, because uh, I know we're running long, is, is there a thing coming up or something that you would point us to in the upcoming months that uh, you'd like all of our attention to have to be on? It could be about narrator, it could be about you personally, it could be something cool going on in the world. Yeah. Um, I would say, oh, this is a tough question. I'm, I'm biased. I'd say narrator because I'm biased for that. I do think we're about to release, uh, there's going to be an upcoming release, which is our KPI layer, which is just helping. Remember, we talked about that framework of helping people think about like what are the things that matter to them and how do we break it? How do we have software facilitate more of that directional thinking and exploratory work? Um, versus just pure question answers. Like how do we actually help you come up with better questions? Like a lot of times we present them. And then uh, our uh, packaged, our packaged uh, analysis are gonna be dupe, dope. Like I think the world's gonna get to a place where you're gonna see a narrator store where anyone who builds any analysis in narrator can share with everyone in the world. And instead of writing blogs about like how we answer this question, you can just open source that or sell it. That analysis and anyone can just with one click download it and start using it. And I think that's something that narrator facilitates. And I think it'll be a really cool world where people can actually work together to share their analyses and their, uh, and now everyone's really moving forward together in making better decisions. And I think that's gonna be pretty cool. So I would want everyone's attention when that comes out. And the best way is just the website, your Twitter. Yeah, website, Twitter, LinkedIn. I'm active on all three right now. So website okay. is actually getting updated and it'll be pretty dope. So. Look forward to the new design and the new release. And then, yeah, and LinkedIn and Twitter are just where I share all my data thoughts. So if you heard something that you find interesting, follow me on Twitter or connect with me on LinkedIn um, and you'll hear a lot more of this stuff. And that was Ahmed. Uh, thank you for joining us. Um, I think that was a really interesting conversation. We got into a variety of different topics. Uh, remember to check us out at learnwithall.com. We're across every platform. Leave us a review, get feedback, check out the YouTube. I think I'm gonna, we're building that out. Uh, we're also making clips. Uh, which are fun. But if there's something you want to see, if there's something you want to hear, let me know. Tell me about it. Tell me where I'm wrong. It's fun. Uh, I, 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 I enjoy learning. So let's all stay curious and have a good rest of your day. And thank you for joining me today.